welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. This bonus episode is from the 12-part Genetics Shambles video series, which you can catch live every fortnight at 8.30pm from the 1st of July on the Cosmic Shambles Network. It's a wide-ranging series of conversations and discussions about the past, present and future of genetics with some of the world leaders in the field. It's hosted by Robin Ince in association with the Genetics Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. You can watch new live stream episodes first at cosmicshambles.com slash geneticsshambles or youtube.com slash cosmicshambles or just catch up here with a podcast edition one week later on Genetics Unzipped. Enjoy! Hello, this is Genetic Shambles and Cosmic Shambles Network producer Trent here uh, with the little preamble before this special episode of Genetic Shambles. In case you don't know, on the 12th and the 13th of December, we at the Cosmic Shambles Network did a 24, well, 25-hour live show called Nine Lessons and Carols for Socially Distanced People. It was live online and it was basically a replacement for the Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People shows and the Robin Ince and Brian Cox compendium, Christmas compendium of reason at the Hammersmith Apollo that we do each year, big science variety nights. Obviously, they had to be cancelled this year due to COVID. So we decided to do all the cancelled shows in a row live online for 25 hours straight. And as part of that 25-hour show, we did a live edition of Genetic Shambles in association, as always, with our friends at the Genetic Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. So that is where this episode comes from. So bear that in mind when you're listening to this episode that this forms part of a larger 25-hour show, which incidentally is available on the Cosmic Shambles website, cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons. You can catch up with all 25 hours of the show on there with lots of guests I'm sure you'll be familiar with, like Alice Roberts and Brian Cox and Chris Hadfield and Robert Smith from The Cure and Tim Minchin and Chris Jackson and all sorts of other people, lots that were on uh, Genetic Shambles during the year as well. And of course, all of the previous episodes of Genetic Shambles are available on the Cosmic Shambles website in video form and right here on Cat's Genetics Unzipped podcast. Anyway, that is more than enough from me. So here is Robin at the start of the Genetics Shambles section of Nine Lessons and Carols for socially distanced people. Have a great Christmas. Have a great holidays. Have a great new year. Hope you enjoy. Anyway, um, we are, so Robert Smith's going to be joining us later on. Now we're going to go over to uh, something that we've done, I think this is probably the fourth time that we've done this uh, since April, uh, with uh, um, a panel of experts, which is, because of course, there's been a lot of uh, non-expert opinions um, about COVID and about the uh, uh, the pandemic. And uh, so we've tried as much as possible throughout the year to always make sure there was a platform for people who can give an, an informed opinion and who are up to date with what's going on going on uh, in terms of, of research and our understanding. And so we are joined by, uh, I'm pleased, one person, uh, two people we have had before, Dr. Emma Hodcroft, uh, Professor Dan Davis, and uh, also we're joined by Professor uh, Kevin Fong as well. Here they all are. Hello, everyone. Hey. 
And uh, thank you very much, by the way. The reason this all exists is because uh, we, we started working together as well with Genetic Society and uh, the Milner Centre as well. So thank you to them. Uh, right, I've been sent in a bunch of questions. I, I'll just start off before we, we go through some of the audience questions. And please do feel free to uh, tweet your questions as well if you uh, have any questions you'd like to ask. And just um, hashtag them, uh, Nine Lessons 24 um, Dan, I think... You were the first, I, th I think even before we did a show with you, Emma, I think, Dan, you were on our, our first panel. Uh, so that would have probably been back in April. Um, what do you think has been, in terms of our understanding and the possibilities given us, what has been the biggest change in what we knew in April and what we know now on December the 12th, 2020? Thanks, Robin. It, uh, it's very obvious, actually, that the big change is that we know vaccines can work. Uh, and that is, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't need a lot of expertise to know that is an unbelievably uh, amazing thing to have happened uh, in that short time. I mean, you just can't overstate how amazing that is. You know, back, I honestly thought this could go on for uh, many years when we first spoke about this in April. And now it looks like we genuinely are turning a corner because there is evidence that the vaccines coming through really work. So it's just unbelievable that that's happened, that you can't, you know, that that couldn't have been uh, easily predicted at the outset back in April. And and Emma, what do you think are the biggest changes in terms of, in terms of public understanding? Because of course there has been, you know, there's been out there, there's been a lot of kind of you know, sometimes I would say it does get to the point of crackpot theory and sometimes dangerous theories and sometimes dangerous theories expounded by people with, you know, public platforms and radio shows and things like that. In terms of your sense of the change in public understanding, what do you think have been the, the, the major changes in, in the last few months? I think the ways we communicate, we've made really big improvements. So I'll tell you what, Emma, we might come back to you because your sound is very low. So... Uh, Either that it was, wasn't it? It's not just me, because at this point I'm no longer trusting my brain. So we co we're going to come back to you, and we're just going to check on that, and then um, yeah, we're going to fix that. Kevin, I'm going to ask you because you have been, you know, working within the hospital system of uh, of, of o over the, the the last nine months. Um, what is the uh, wh what have been the biggest challenges for you? in terms of some of the public perceptions and what the actual work that you've been doing uh, yourself? Yeah, so um, I, I've been both continuing to work in, in my hospital at UCLH, but but also uh, uh, with NHS England. Uh, I, I, am, I am formerly the National Clinical Advisor with one of the COVID cells up there. I think for me, the hardest thing really has been, you know, watching that first wave go through with such huge amount of support for our for our frontline teams, and and then um, and then hitting the second wave, which has been very different in character, and having a lot of the public support really fall away, um, and 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 then have some of those narratives that say I don't know what all the fuss is about. Your hospitals are empty. They are not empty, um, quite the reverse. Um, and and you know that's hard. That's hard for people who have given everything every day without a break since since the start of this thing. Um, to hear, uh, you know, and and to watch that stuff circulate, and you just wish sometimes you could drag them, you know, through the plastic airlock on, on, onto your ICUs, wear PPE, and and have that conversation right there. So you know, it, 
it's been a difficult difficult time you know the, the, the first wave for us was a bit like you know it was a bit of a sprint and the second wave is sort of you know marathon war of attrition i think is there anything in particular you can tell because i i think this is it's a it's kind of a, a, a this strange situation which is for those who have been unaffected by it you can walk through the streets and you can get that sense of well, hang on a minute is any of this really happening that it's that disparity between what you are dealing with and indeed what people have been dealing with once they have actually been touched by this and people who just think well the world looks exactly the same yeah i mean it is very difficult and and i think this is something that we've always known i remember when one of the flu pandemics hit hits um uh, the the you know a few years back they sort of said you know one of the reasonable worst case scenarios back then was that sixty thousand people would die but but we knew statistically that that number of people you statistically are unlikely to know anyone directly who has died of that disease and I think thing it, we do have trouble don't we processing stuff if it absolutely doesn't if we can't see it ourselves it's hard and and you know uh, but but. The terrifying thing about COVID is it doesn't take much to get to the point where everyone is going to know somebody who has been affected and killed by this disease. So, so you know, if you put that in perspective, uh, you know, if you think about the number of diabetics as in type 1 diabetics, insulin-using diabetics that you know, we all know one or two at least. Um, and when you get to sort of a couple of 100,000 people dead, that is the same level. So, so if you let this thing run riot that is where you get to quite quickly so it is hard and i understand why it's hard because if you're not working in the middle of it if you're not seeing it if you're not focused on the science it, it's almost a defense mechanism to feel that it isn't happening but it but it is happening uh, you know take it from me it, it it's happening and Emma, what do you, the question I asked you before really in terms of uh, what are you seeing as the most positive pieces of in terms of bridging that communication between the scientists, between the people in, in, in medicine and to, to the broader public? So I think, I mean, following on from what Kevin just said, that, I mean, part of it, I hope, is that helping to communicate to people that this is real. We did see over the summer, you know, a lot of Unfortunately, theories about that this was a, a, a case-demic, people called it, that it was just testing, but that it had all been just kind of flu in the spring, that it was, there wasn't going to be a second wave, it hadn't come back. I hope that, you know, communication has improved so that people are taking this more seriously now. But but what I was going to say originally was, was that I do think that we've made great strides in helping people understand what the risks are. So I think, you know, when this first started happening in the spring, there was a lot of concern about how do you keep yourself safe and people were you know washing all their groceries they were leaving mail in the in the back garden for a week because it might be contaminated now we know that we don't necessarily have to take those kinds of steps but unfortunately what we have learned is that a lot of the things that probably do protect us the most are some of the things that help us socialize and meet other people um, in in ways that that were previously safe but aren't safe now. So things like, you know, meeting your family in enclosed rooms, you know, going to restaurants in large groups. So we know a lot more about how to keep safe, but unfortunately some of these things are harder to execute than just uh, disinfecting surfaces. And I think in some ways that's made them harder to implement. Thank you. Now the first one of the audience questions, we've got one, which is um, if we'd all just worn masks from the get-go, how much better 
would this be? Now, I know that's a very hard thing to, you know, to actually then turn that, but, but in terms of, and I know we've talked about this before as well, um, the, the, the use of masks. Can you give us, uh, Emma, a little bit of a, a, of a sense of, of what they are doing and indeed see how much we can answer that question of how different it might be if from a much earlier stage we had been because it does seem very strange now looking back I remember making a radio show where a couple of days beforehand we went let's not have an audience it seems like there's a bit of jeopardy and within two weeks we were in lockdown and yet all of this was going across Europe and we were almost like this kind of well, we won't get it because of uh, Jack Hawkins in the film The Cruel Sea yeah, so it's always hard to to look back and, and think about, you know, if we'd done X, Y, Z differently, how big of a difference would it have made? But I do think we can say fairly concretely that if we had all started wearing masks quite early, which I, I don't want to uh, overstate that this would have been really difficult. We had a very different mindset then. It's easy to kind of imagine now because we all do it, but this would have been hard to do. I think we do know it probably would have made a difference because we know now that masks help catch those micro droplets that have viruses in them. They help catch those from people who are infected, keep them from floating around in the air and hopefully decrease the chance that they infect someone else. They may also have a small uh, effect of protecting yourself, though this is thought to be considerably less. But I, I think that certainly if people had been wearing masks, we, we might have seen many fewer of these kind of super spreader events in particular that happened in indoor settings, like in churches, uh, in the skiing resorts in Ischgl, any of these indoor places where people were really closely together. I also think, however, it wouldn't have, it might not have prevented things entirely because masks, you know, the famous Swiss cheese analogy is that every everything that we do is a layer of, of cheese that has some holes in it. So masks themselves are, they do a lot, but they're not perfect. So I don't want to say that, you know, masks would have solved everything, but they might have meant that we bought ourselves some time to figure out more about what was going on and how dangerous this is. So we could have put other things in place to maybe stop those death peaks in spring from being as high as they unfortunately ended up being. Thank you. Um, Dan, for, this is someone would like to know, can you please explain why there are three vaccines? How are the three different vaccines for the same disease? Uh, is this true of other diseases too? Yeah, so that's uh, uh, an important issue. There are actually, there are about uh, 15 vaccines in sort of large scale human trials at the moment. Uh, and they're, so they're, the three that they're referring to are probably the Pfizer, Moderna, and the Oxford-AstraZeneca ones that are in the public eye uh, a lot right now, because those are the ones that are sort of slightly ahead of the game in, in getting uh, approval for, for widespread use. So the uh, there, there are these three vaccines. They are all slightly different. Uh, um, the, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines uh, work by... Uh, giving, injecting into you a small uh, piece of genetic material which um, uh, contains the information that makes your own cells start to produce one of the protein molecules naturally that are found in the coronavirus itself. That's called the spike protein. And then your body will start to uh, make its own antibodies and T-cell response against that spike protein that then when if your body happens to be infected with the real virus that has that spike protein on it, your, your body should then hopefully react against that. So that's that's those two vaccines. The other vaccine, the Oxford AstraZeneca one, works slightly differently in that it is using um, uh, a sort of type of uh, a type of uh, cold virus normally in primates, not normally infecting humans, and they've 
added into that again some genetic material that start, gets uh, to make the spike protein and then that is given to you so um so the so the, the vaccines are different and what's really important to understand here um well there's two things one is our knowledge is great enough that we can make these vaccines but at the outset we didn't know exactly which one was going to work or not work so placing lots of bets was a good idea so that's why we have lots of different kinds of vaccines and that is actually an amazing uh, achievement from thousands of scientists across the globe to make all these different vac place lots of bets is, is a really good idea in this situation now we're in the fortunate position where the evidence so far is that more than one of these vaccines is working. And now we're in the fortunate position where it's very likely that the vaccines will work slightly better or worse in different situations. Um, and having lots available is really important. So for example, the Pfizer vaccine that is well been publicized as having the problem of it has to be kept at minus 70 degrees during its transport. That's not going to solve the problem globally because across the across the world, there are many countries which are going to find it really hard to have the health infrastructure to maintain a virus at minus 70 degrees for very long before it's used. So there are it's really good that we have different versions of vaccines which look like they're they're working. And I think in time, we'll also see that some of these vaccines might work better in certain groups of people. We're not there yet because there isn't a big enough data set for that. But I think in time, that is something which is probably going to emerge. And so the different vaccines would also have a use for that reason as well. So it's really quite amazing that we have different vaccines that seem like they're working. Thank you. The, uh, I just saw someone, Zed's Dead, who uh, on Twitter was just saying, I bet they didn't have all this expert analysis in 1918. There were a lot of other things they didn't have, and there were things that they did have, like that really enormous child mortality rate. Um, so uh, this is, uh, Kevin, this is, a, a, again, another tricky one, because predictive stuff, I know, is never, but someone would like to know, how bad do you think 2021 is going to be I mean what in terms of and I know, I know we're not going to hold you to any of your mystic Meg like predictions but what do you what are your expectations initially working within the health service uh, and I suppose in some ways that also gives you a chance to talk a little bit about how we should make sure that we you know we don't just go with well, the vaccines here it's all going to be fine which I know some people have felt that this is a now we can just throw our hats up in the air and everything's going to be all right because we'll all get the vaccine when necessary Look, I mean, I mean, the short answer is um, I don't know these predictions very difficult to make, but, but, but um, I think the best metaphor for all of this has always been for me the, the forest fire. And, and it works very much like that. And it's depressingly, it's depressingly well behaved as, as a pandemic, really, insofar as, you know, there's plenty of dry forest left to burn and we put out the flames and you've got smouldering embers. And if you don't look after it, it bursts into flames again and it keeps going and it keeps going. And so so you you cannot stop, you know, you cannot think we're done and we're over. We're not done and out of this until we have something that approaches herd, herd immunity out there through vaccination. And so, you know, uh, uh, and certainly in, in, the, in the UK at the moment, uh, we're, we're at a pretty critical time. And I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased that we've moved so far and so fast with the development of the vaccines. But, but you know, we, we I've said this before, you know, it is a celebration of the sort that you can have 
you know, if your team go one nil up in the first half of the World Cup final, you know, it's too early. It's too early. And we've got a very dangerous three months ahead of us because everyone has to have the discipline. Everybody has to have the discipline to hold their nerve and to play by the rules. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we do this for all of us, right? So the, the, that, that thing that Chris Whitty said, which was brilliant, was, you know, my risk is your risk. It's a, this, this collective idea of risk. And, and it's not like we don't understand that. You know, we don't drink drive. Um, you know, we, we understand that, don't we, as a collective risk, as a, as a risk to yourself and to other people. You know, we wear seatbelts. We understand that some of the things we do, we do for ourselves, and some of the things we do, we do for other people. Um, but but this, this somehow, we, we've lost this, this set of our collective responsibility, and it is about collective responsibility. It isn't about the risk that you as an individual bear, it is about the risk that you project back into society, back into the people who are most vulnerable. It is the risk you project back into the healthcare system by denying other people access to healthcare because we're too busy looking after COVID. So um, I cannot predict for you what 2021 is going to look like. And and the thing I always say to people when they ask me this, that, that, you know, we are not out of the woods yet, but until the vaccine started to arrive, the woods were also on fire. And, and they're at least not on fire anymore, but we're not out of the woods. Thanks, Kevin. Emma, do you think uh, looking at uh, a positive side to it into is the one in terms of when something like this does happen the advances in science and i do know that you know so many people kind of so many different institutions when we're putting everything else down we're just now focusing on this and there's been a lot of kind of international uh, you know cooperation with this are we seeing in terms of both understanding living things in terms of understanding viruses is has this got a broader uh, advance to it of, of knowledge than merely dealing with COVID-19 on its own? Yeah, so I would say that it most definitely does. And I think this is hopefully one of the good things we can pull out of this pandemic. Of course, one can argue, and I would argue, that you, you shouldn't need a pandemic to make these kinds of scientific advances. But since we are here and this is the situation we are in, it makes it all the more important that all of those who have been hurt and, and been killed by this pandemic that we try and pull as much good out of that as we can. And one of the ways we can do that is through the scientific advances that we've made and hopefully will continue making. So one really big one is, is the, the ability to manufacture vaccines so quickly, to develop and manufacture vaccines so quickly. And mRNA vaccines are incredibly promising for the future. They, they look like they will you know, be a huge help to us here, but they're much easier to develop and to update than more traditional vaccine technologies. And so this could be a huge boon for many diseases worldwide that we could start making mRNA vaccines for more than just COVID in, and, and vaccines that are maybe you know, more easy to update and more easy to roll out than we have been previously. But we've also seen, I think one thing that's really important to highlight, kind of what we can happen when we push aside some of the competitiveness and some of the um, kind of divisions that pull apart research and that can pull apart scientists. You know, everything, as you say, kind of everything has been pushed aside in the pursuit of doing more for COVID. But, and that has allowed us to make absolutely incredible advances. So imagine if we were able to do this for other diseases, for other problems in the world. And I think that 
it, to me, it's been really inspiring to see scientists come together globally to share data, to share collaborations, to kind of put the public good and the interests of the pandemic ahead of the kind of um, academic interests. But this is hard because long term, you know, those, those incentives are there for reasons. We live within institutions that prioritize things that may not be in the public good, like sharing your data quickly rather than getting a really good publication, which will help you get a job. Um, so we do need to kind of keep this, um, keep this spirit going and make sure that this doesn't end when the pandemic ends, when we're all vaccinated and we're hopefully back to a normal life, that we're actually able to keep this spirit of collaboration, cooperation, open sharing, and kind of drive to get things done for the public good over our personal good or our institutional good. We shouldn't take this for granted. We should, we should really concretely you know, push that forward so that we can do this for other diseases and other problems in society. Thank you. Uh, Dan, uh, another question, which is, uh, why is it that uh, COVID-19 seems so much worse than other coronaviruses? Yeah, that's a, that, uh, okay, that's a tricky question. So that, you know, the, well, you know, that comes down to the basic science of what happens when you're infected with this particular coronavirus. And um, I would say that at the moment, we don't fully understand that. Uh, we, you know, we don't. We still don't really fully understand what makes some people do uh, be, be asymptomatic. You know, not have severe symptoms. Some people suffer severe symptoms, and, and of course, some people uh, sadly pass away with the virus. And we still don't really understand what the differences are in in people's responses. We. That's not to say there's not been a lot of work on that. There is. You know, I, I keep up with the with the immunology of what happens, what happens to your immune system when you're infected with the virus. And, you know, there are new papers, new, new research papers published daily on, on the topic, but it hasn't come down to the level where there's a really uh, easy answer as to what exactly happens. You know, there are papers saying, you know, you could group people into sort of three different categories, seven different categories, according to this cell or that cell type, in moving into the lung and having an over over uh, uh, overactive response and it should do etc so there are lots of kind of theories on this and moving towards understanding but i actually think that the short answer uh to that question is 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 that we don't quite know but i just wanted to also pick up on something that kevin uh, said well also uh, emma also pointed out which is which is this sort of emphasis that we're not out of the woods yet and and i I've obviously I fully agree with that, but but it's also true for another important reason, which perhaps hasn't come up yet, which is that although all of us and me included are getting are sort of welcoming the vaccines coming through, and, and Kevin was rightly pointing out that the next three months are absolutely critical before we even get to a widespread use of the vaccines. Even with the vaccines that are coming through, we're not out of the woods yet because we don't know, for example, how long the protection lasts with the vaccines. Uh, and so it's really important that there's 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 overwhelming hope, uh, but obviously that it, we're not we we you know for many reasons actually we're not out of the woods there. It's the fact that we've got to sort it out globally. The fact that we don't yet know how well the vaccine protects us for how long. We don't know whether the vaccine prevents transmission of the virus. There are many many unknowns, and science, uh, you know. There's a long way for science to really bring us out of all of this for, for many, in many levels, um, including the question you just asked, which is exactly understanding what makes people do better or worse when they're infected with the virus.
Now, this one is a hands-up one because I don't know if any of you will have an, an answer for this, and I don't want to throw it individually to someone, which is just, do we know anything? I was talking to a friend of mine, Spencer, who uh, had COVID quite early on in the pandemic and uh, seems to have fully physically recovered. And yet, every now and again, he finds he goes to a thing that was previously something he liked, for instance, say, a whiskey. And he goes, God, I hate the taste of that now. Now, of course, we know in the early stages there is this, you know, loss of of of, uh, of the ability to experience flavors. But I'm just, do we know anything about why people? And he's not the only one. There's a few people I've spoken to who seem to have fully physically recovered, but now find themselves recoiling at flavors which previously they enjoyed. Who's going to put their hand up for that one? Kevin, you put your hand up by mistake. <laughs> you fool. You're going to have to make up some rubbish instead. <laughs> yes, thanks, thanks for that, Robin. So, so I, I, was, I was having this discussion with a friend of mine who's, who's a neurologist up in Sheffield. And, uh, you know, the fine science of this is, you know, again, unknown. The, your, it's really interesting. Your olfactory nerve, the nerve that is responsible for your sense of smell, is this the forwardmost projection of your brain. You know, it projects r right out there. And it is the area of your brain that is most exposed to what you breathe in, basically. Um, and, and so it is exposed to that pathogen. So beyond that, the fundamental mechanism we don't understand. We, we don't understand, um, uh, you know, like, 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 like many things but but you know it, it's this is a strange strange um virus in many ways and, and it, it, in the way that it uh in, in the way that it, it behaves uh, and uh, and coming back to the earlier question about why this one's been so bad so at a fundamental biological level we still aren't sure but the character of this infection has been markedly different from previous coronaviruses. Even the SARS virus of 2003, um, uh, you know, in, insofar as it's deeply, it's really horribly efficient. And, and when we think of an efficient virus, you think, oh, well, something that kills you very easily, but that's not true. So a virus that kills you very quickly and very easily after you've been infected actually tends to stay endemic within a population because those people never move around long enough to spread it. But this is one that allows you to spread and not just spread, spread when you don't even know you've got it. So SARS-1 in 2003, you, you tended to be maximally infective by the time that you were maximally sick. So by the time you, you were actually maximally infected, you're already inside hospital, which is why we actually see, we saw so very many casualties amongst healthcare workers in 2003, you know, for only a few hundred deaths w worldwide. Um, but with, with, with SARS-CoV-2 responsible for COVID-19, um, we're seeing people able to spread while they're very well, may not even ever know they've got it, and then and then and then a virus that is lethal to a substantial fraction, a, a big enough fraction of people that you can cause this widespread. I mean, widespread pandemic. If you wanted to tweak all the variables in what a, what what a virus should be to make it maximally efficient to cause a pandemic, SARS-CoV-2 is pretty close to it. So, uh, at a fundamental level, a lot of these things remain unknown as to precisely what it is about the virus that does that but the, the characteristics of it are very clear and this is what it does and this is why i've had to take it seriously and i think this question i'm going to throw this just to you kevin first as well and please others do join in afterwards but it feels that you're the person who's been closest to this which is uh, uh someone's interested in knowing what other ways have we found in terms of improving how we treat people with covid19 over the last few months yeah, so look, for, for, for our frontline clinical teams, this has been the mother of all steep learning curves, you know, and I, I still have trouble, you know, 
comprehending what it was like. I do still remember leaving the hospital in in uh, uh, you know early March when we realised it was on its way and realising what we were in for, but only reading the reports of what was coming out of Italy, uh, but knowing that that was coming our way. And then as it washed up, watching people trying to work, you know, th- th- there's we don't have a playbook for COVID nineteen. We we didn't have, and so. Every day it was all the running that anyone could do just to stay in the same spot. So the mainstay of this treatment for people who are very, very unwell is to support them if they need support with either more oxygen or support with their breathing. And because, you know, first and foremost, this this cause is, is a respiratory virus. Um, and, and that's what we do in intensive care. When people are exhausted, effectively, we give them a rest and we support their physiology by artificial means. It's it's a remarkable thing, really. Um, we have discovered along the way that fortuitously, or not fortuitously, because it was it was part of a of a uh, a proper clinical trial, that dexamethasone, a cheap very cheap, very well-known, very well-understood drug actually has a significant impact in the mortality here. So, so that's fantastic news. You know, this is not a bleeding-edge technology drug. This is something that we've been using all the time. We understand it, and that modifies the disease to give us an edge. It's not a panacea by any means. We have some better ideas about how to apply the mechanical support that we do um, for for ventilation, mechanical ventilation, intubation, etc. Um, we have some promising drugs out that are antiviral drugs. But again, as is the same same story across the whole of this pandemic, there is no and there will be no magic bullet. This is this is, uh, you know, it's difficult to use war as a metaphor, but this is a battle that we will win uh, in, in incremental steps in marginal gains. It requires us to throw around dexamethasone, us to know how to ventilate people, us to spot people before they get bad, badly ill, us to test and trace people in an efficient way. It requires the public to do their bit, to have our backs, to stop us getting overwhelmed. It requires people to wear masks, it requires people to respect social distancing. It requires people to understand that we are genuinely, genuinely all in this together. And, and if any of us drop the ball, you know, Dan and Emma's side on the science, my side on the front line, clinical, the public on their side in the prevention, we're done. We're done. And so it is all of that together until the end. And, and there's, there is nothing, no one's going to turn up with drug X and say, forget about it, stop worrying. That's not how this works. And, and you know, if I can say only one thing, it, it, it would be that. Thank you. And then just we're nearly out of time. I'd like to ask all of you, starting with you, Emma, in terms of uh, what do you think is the uh, the most useful advice that you can currently give to people watching this in the current situation? And also, if there's anywhere in particular for people when they're trying to find uh, the most accurate information, where are the best places for them to go? So my advice would be something that I've been I feel like I've been shouting about since since May aerosols. And I, I feel like we still are not talking enough about aerosols, about the risk of being in rooms with other people and, and how much you can decrease that risk by wearing masks, 
decreasing the number of people in that room, opening up windows and doors, making sure you ventilate those spaces. I think we, we really have underestimated in the early part of the epidemic how many transmissions took place in these closed scenarios. And as I kind of alluded to earlier, we were all busy you know, disinfecting our couches when the virus was in the air floating around and we, that, that's where we need to stop it. And I think unfortunately we still aren't really approaching this enough in society possibly because economically it is not a good thing because in some situations it's probably not possible to make those areas safe but even whatever you know whatever restrictions are in place in whatever country you're in it's really important the public know what the risks are so that they can decide whether they want to take them and reduce them where possible as far as where to go for information that's a really tough one because one of the problems with with COVID-19 is that it's so cutting edge that oftentimes, you know, there isn't kind of one place where someone has compiled all of the latest scientific data. I think following some of your favorite scientists on Twitter is a great way to, to keep up with kind of the latest, the latest things, the latest studies, the latest news that's going around, but also following, you know, high quality publications, news, news agencies um, that have done good reporting in the past on COVID-19 are continuing to put out great articles about the problems today and the latest scientific advances. And I would really recommend those can be some great places to get up-to-date information on, on the latest things that we're learning in science and in health. And Dan, we've got one minute left. Okay, sorry. Uh, my advice would be um, to really, you know, there's, we're, it's much easier early on because it was warm weather uh, and it was fresh. And now we're in the really hard bit because it's winter. Uh, you want to see your parents or grandparents and they're elderly and they're lonely and it's really difficult. But you have to be really careful in the next few months uh, because I do believe we're turning a corner in being able to treat this disease, but we're not there yet. And the next few months are really, really, really critical. So please do take care. The rules are kind of a minimum of what you should do is my feeling on that. Try to just, you know, look after yourself and your family and stay safe for a few months. If Christmas happens in June, that'll be okay. The Christmas party, I mean, uh, or Hanukkah party. And um, uh, in terms of where to get advice, look, I'm no fan of the government on many levels, but I think the government does put out solid advice. They have to. It's, you know, that's what, that, that you know, the government advice on what to do around COVID-19 uh, is... Is, is it's got to be it's got to be well thought out. It goes through lots of checks. Uh, my feeling is it's important to listen to what's going on and other and other reputable places. The BBC News, for example, there are of course learned societies. The British Society of Immunology puts out a lot of uh, more more specialised information. The Academy of Medical Sciences. Sorry, that was probably a bit more than a minute. That's all right. It always is. That's what I love about you, Dan. Is uh, is uh, I really recommend Dan's books. By the way, they are an absolute joy, and you always have so much that you want to share, and it's always very valid as well. So thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. By the way, a lot of people have been tweeting as well to say thank you very much, and thank you to all of the frontline workers and all of those people. Not merely working the NHS, a lot of people working with old people, a lot of people that I know who are working with uh, children sometimes who are uh, quite poorly. All of the people who are really putting themselves at maximum risk and often at the highest cost in terms of also for the rest of their life in terms of making sure that one thing they're focusing on their job so thank you very much Kevin and thank you very much everyone for for joining us